Not too long ago, I came across this letter written by a college-age daughter to her parents. Dear Mom and Dad, I am so sorry to be so long in writing again, but all my paper was lost the night the sorority house burned down. I'm out of the hospital now, and the doctors say my eyesight should be back to normal soon. The wonderful boy who rescued me from the fire kindly offered to share his little off-campus apartment with me until the dorm is rebuilt. He comes from a good family, so you won't be too surprised when I tell you we're going to get married. In fact, you've always wanted a grandchild, so you'll be delighted to hear that you'll be grandparents in just a few months. Please disregard all the above, because it's simply an exercise in English composition. There was no fire. I haven't been in the hospital, and I am not blind. I'm not pregnant. I don't even have a boyfriend. But I did get a D in French and a C in chemistry, and I wanted to be sure that you received this news in proper perspective. Love your darling daughter, Mary. You know, maintaining proper perspective is important not only for parents of a college-age student, but it's also pretty important for all followers of Christ. Life is full of peaks and valleys, success and setbacks. And the only way for us to navigate the terrain of life in a healthy way is to have a proper perspective. Over the last several weeks, we've been examining the life of Joseph in a series that's entitled The Life of Joseph, Lessons on Faithfulness and Forgiveness. Today, we come to the climax of his biography. It's here at the apex of the story that he finally reveals his identity to his brothers. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Genesis chapter 45. I'll be reading verses 1 to 15. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 45, allow me to begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 15. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down here to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. 
Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and you can see, my brother Benjamin, that it really is I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This morning I wonder, why did Joseph choose now to reveal his identity? Certainly he could have kept the masquerade going a little bit longer. He could have revealed his identity far earlier. But why now? Why in this moment did he dismiss all of his attendants, leave himself alone just with his 11 brothers, and then reveal his identity? What prompted the author of the text to say that Joseph could no longer control himself? I think the answer is found in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, we are told that once Joseph had that lavish meal with his brothers, he dismissed them loaded them down with grain, told them to return to their father and their families and to provide the needs for their families. They had not gone very far when, unbeknownst to them, Joseph had ordered for his favorite silver cup to be placed in Benjamin's baggage. The prime minister called his attendants. He said, I want you to go and I want you to catch up with those guys And I want you to ask them, why have you repaid evil with good? Why have you stolen my master's favorite silver chalice? It didn't take the attendants very long to catch up to those rowdy redneck band of brothers. And when they got to them, they said exactly what the prime minister told them to say. Why did you repay evil with good? Why why did you uh, steal my master's favorite silver cup? Now the brothers had had enough. They thought to themselves, now listen, we've been accused of a lot of things, but we are, not, we are not thieves. We have not stolen anything. We've been on our best behavior. And one by one, the attendants looked through all the baggage of all those brothers, started with the oldest Reuben, made his way down all the way to the youngest Benjamin. And when each of those brothers passed the examination, their confidence grew. They were very confident that they had not stolen anything. By the time it gets down to Benjamin, they have enormous confidence because they know Benjamin is a holier-than-thou Boy Scout. There's no way that Benjamin would have stolen anything. You can imagine their surprise. You can imagine how their hearts sank. When the silver chalice of the prime minister of Egypt was found right there in the luggage that belonged to Benjamin. They were overwhelmed with grief. Scripture says that they ripped their clothes and they cried out unto the Lord and they said, what now? What's going to happen to us now? And then they went back and stood in the presence of the second in command over all of Egypt, the prince of Egypt, the prime minister himself. It's Judah who speaks up. Judah says, what can we do now? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered our guilt. We will now all be your slaves. The prime minister responded and he said, I'm a fair man. 
There's no reason for all of you to be my slaves for life. Only the one who stole the silver chalice. That's the only one who has to stay here. The rest of you can go back to your starving families and you can take care of them and take care of your aging father. It's Judah who says, there is no way I can return without my brother Benjamin. My father was very reluctant to even send him down here with us. And I gave him my personal promise that I would make sure that nothing happened to Benjamin. If I return without Benjamin, surely my father will go down to the grave and I can't be responsible for once again losing one of my father's sons. I cannot afford that. So please, will you allow me to take the place of my brother? Allow me to be your captive and allow him to have my freedom and allow my brothers to go and I will stay in their place. Church, I gotta tell you, that Judah's suggestion of a sacrificial substitution is an amazing thing. Judah has come a mighty long way, hasn't he? You think back in chapter 37, it was Judah who was the ringleader who thought to himself, let's get rid of this dreamer named Joseph. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph to the band of Midianites that were coming down from Dothan, traveling to Egypt. Judah was the one who said, let's sell him for 20 pieces of silver. We can divide it up and each of us will get two silver coins. It was Judah's idea to knock off Joseph. In chapter 38 of Genesis, it's this very same Judah who has an illicit, improper sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law. I mean, Judah is a scallywag. He is not one of the most moral guys in the bunch. And here in Genesis 45, Judah has come a mighty long way. He's older. He's wiser. He's more mature. And he stands there before the most powerful man in all of Egypt. And he says, please allow me to be the substitute for my brother. When I think of this, I'm reminded of another descendant of Judah who offered himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice. For the one that I'm referring to is a descendant of Judah who was a good man. And I'm not talking about Boaz, even though Boaz was a descendant of Judah and he was a good man. He was the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And even though Boaz was a good man, that's not the descendant of Judah I have in mind. This particular descendant of Judah that I'm thinking of is not only a good man, but he was a great king. And no, I'm not talking about King David, even though history will reveal that David was one of the greatest kings in Israel's illustrious history. No, the descendant of Judah that I have in mind was not only a good man who was a great king, but he was loved by his people. And no, I'm not talking about King Uzziah. Even though King Uzziah was one of the greatest rulers of the southern kingdom of Judah, he reigned for some 52 years and he was beloved by all the people. This particular descendant of Judah that I'm referring to is not only a good man who's a great king loved by his people, but he is powerful in prayer. And no, I'm not talking about King Hezekiah. Even though King Hezekiah asked for 15 more years of life and the Lord granted it to him just because God is a gracious God and Hezekiah had the uh, uh, confidence to ask God for it. No, the one to whom I refer, the descendant of Judah, who was a good man, a great king, loved by the people and powerful in prayer, is none other than Jesus the Christ. 
For Jesus is of the line and lineage of David. He is of the tribe of Judah. And Jesus was and is a good man. He opened up the eyes of the blind. He enabled the deaf to hear. He raised the dead. He's not just a good man. He is the God man. Fully God and fully man. 100% divine and 100% human. There's never been another person like Jesus. Jesus is the God man, the good man. But not only is he a good man, Jesus is a great king. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. There is no one who can match his majesty. There is no one who can outdo his supremacy. Jesus is the Lord of all lords, and he is the king of all kings. He is a good man who is a great king. But Jesus is also a good man who's a great king, loved by his people. In fact, the scripture says in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, that For all of eternity, that representatives of every tribe, every nation, every kindred, every tongue will gather around the holy throne of God and exalt the name of Christ. They will say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Jesus will be worshiped as the good man, as the great king, as beloved by his people, both now and forevermore. Jesus is not up for election. Jesus cannot be impeached. Jesus does not follow the polls of popular opinion. He is the one and his people love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh yes, my friends, Jesus is the descendant of Judah who was a good man and a great king loved by his people and powerful in prayer because you do know that right now Jesus is praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. If you are in Christ, you can rest assured that in this very moment, Jesus is praying for you. He's pleading your cause and your case before God the Father in heaven. And there are often times that you don't even know what to pray. You don't know how to pray. You just uh, lift up moans and groans. And the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ can interpret those moans and groans. And Jesus intercedes for you. He is praying right now. Whatever is heavy on your heart, whatever is is, is loading you down your Jesus my Jesus our King of Kings our Lord of Lords he is praying for us in this very moment oh my friends there's no one like Jesus he is the descendant of Judah who is a good man and a great king loved by his people and powerful in prayer this is Jesus The one who knew no sin, yet he became sin for us. He died in our place so that we may live forever. He is our sufficient substitute. He died so that we may live. He said, I'll give you my freedom and I'll take upon myself your captivity. I think it's in this moment of our story that this is too much for Joseph to handle. He knows his brother Judah. He knows what he's like. He knows now what he has become. And when Judah stands there with a plea saying, let me stay here in captivity so that my brother can go free, it is this that causes Joseph to lose control. It is this that causes him just to lose it. He begins to bawl. He begins to weep. He dismisses all of his attendants. He wails so loudly that they can hear him outside the door. In fact, we're even told that Pharaoh hears about how Joseph has been crying. And in this dramatic moment, it is Joseph, as he's trying to choke out a phrase in the midst of the sobs and the tears, 
And he leans forward, locking eyes with his brothers, and he says to them, I am Joseph. What a powerful phrase. I am Joseph. This is the first time that Joseph has spoken to them in their vernacular. You know that he has been conversing with them up until this, up until this point through an interpreter. This is the first time that he speaks his own native language. He says it in their dialect. He, he leans forward and he says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? And the brothers, they looked at him and they thought, that's Joseph. They looked closer. That's Joseph. Then they thought, that's Joseph. And all of a sudden, they're just overwhelmed with fear. They're overwhelmed with anxiety. They think to themselves, oh, no, that is Joseph. On the one hand, we're excited. He's not dead. On the other hand, he's the prince of Egypt. He, he is the prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command over all this thing. He's the one that's in charge. He can kill us in this moment. That's Joseph. That is Joseph. That's our long lost brother. That's Joseph. And Joseph responds in verses 5 to 8. And in this moment when Joseph could have leveled and let down the hammer, he responds with grace. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So that it was not you who sent me here, but God. In this moment when Joseph could have responded with bitterness and retaliation and resentment and revenge, he responds with grace. He has a proper perspective the climax of the whole story, that the crux of the passage is there in verses seven and eight. And in verses seven and eight, you and I see what it looks like to have a proper perspective. Let me suggest to you this morning that the only way you and I can handle human suffering is through a proper divine perspective. That's the only way we can manage it. That's the only way we can handle it. it suffering is part and parcel with a human condition. You suffer, I suffer, Joseph suffered tremendously. And the only way he was able to navigate the suffering was through a proper divine perspective. That proper perspective always knows first and foremost that God is sovereign. That word sovereign means in control. That God is in control. He says to his brothers, but God sent me here to preserve a remnant. Somewhere along the way, Joseph understood, my brothers are not sovereign. My savior is sovereign. He is in control of all things. He orchestrates my path. He is my GPS. He is my navigation system. And when I'm following God and with God in control, I can't make a wrong turn because any wrong turn can be turned into a right turn at any turn because God is in charge of all things. He is sovereign. Joseph says that God sent me here for his purpose. Whatever God permits in your life, he promotes for his good and for his glory. Even the tragedy, 
Even the suffering, whatever God permits, he promotes for his good and for his glory. So Joseph, somewhere along the way, came to the conclusion, my God is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. He's in charge of every aspect of my life. My God is in charge. I'm here, Joseph says, because God sent me here. And he sent me here on purpose and for his purpose to preserve a remnant. God knew what was going to happen, not only in my world, but in the cosmos. He knew about this severe famine. He knew what was going to take place. And he positioned me in such a spot so that I could be used by him to preserve his remnant. What God did to Joseph, he does to your life and to my life, to your plans and to my plans. He's in charge of everything. He is sovereign. That one that gives you fits is not sovereign in your life. That person that's a, that's a, that's a real problem in your life, that, that situation, that scenario, that concern that's so overwhelming that keeps you up at night, that's not sovereign in your life. There's only one sovereign creation. There's only one sovereign being, and that's the Lord Jesus. And here, Joseph understands that God is sovereign. He is in charge. If you're going to have a proper perspective on how to handle life's suffering, you, like Joseph, have to acknowledge that our God and our God alone is sovereign. He's in charge of everything. But not only that, secondly, he is preoccupied about your deliverance. Our God who is sovereign is preoccupied about your deliverance. Joseph says to his brothers that God sent me here to save many lives through a great deliverance. God is preoccupied about your rescue. God is preoccupied about your deliverance. He is sovereign. He knows your future as certainly as he knows your past. He's in control of all things and he is preoccupied about getting you in a position where he can use you most effectively. He is preoccupied about your deliverance. Now certainly when Joseph writes this, certainly when Joseph says this, he's thinking to himself, you know, God has me here so I can deliver my family so I can spare them from this famine. And certainly that's true. But Moses is the author of the text. And when he pins the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and when he sees here the words of Joseph, I think that Moses is, is also speaking at another level that, that Joseph was there not just to spare the family of Joseph, but also to deliver the family of God. Think about this for a second. Before the Israelites even needed to be rescued, God was sending the rescuer ahead of them. Before they even needed to be delivered, God was already in the process of their deliverance. Before the Israelites became slaves in Egypt for some 400 years and cried out unto the Lord and asked him to come and save them. And before God reached out with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and rescued the Israelites from the Egyptian captivity, enabled them to cross on through the Red Sea on dry ground. Before any of that ever took place, God was already orchestrating their deliverance through Joseph. He knew that before they could be enslaved, they had to get 
down there. And before they could get down there, he had to send Joseph there. And so God always knows your future as certainly as he knows your past. And your whole story is all about how God wants to deliver you from all of your suffering and all of your sinfulness. God is in the process of your deliverance. Our God always rules with the end in mind. You know, sometimes we wring our hands in despair. We, we get uh, overwhelmed. We get frustrated. We get worried because we don't know how this is going to turn out. We don't know uh, what, what's going to happen there or we've got this problem at work or this health concern or we've got this family crisis. We've got an economic situation in our homes. Uh, we, we've got all these problems and burdens that are oh, oh so uh, seem to be insurmountable. And we get overwhelmed. And the reason is because we are living through them. And we don't always know how they're all going to turn out. But our God rules with the end in mind. He's preoccupied about your deliverance. He knows how he's going to deliver you from whatever you're in right now. And he's already sent the rescuer. He's already sent the plan of deliverance before you even get into the problem. That's how big and sovereign our God is. That's how far in control he is. He knows how to get you out of something before you even step into something. God rules with the end in mind. The only analogy, the best analogy that I can use of this uh, is limited, but allow me to share it with you. You know that I'm a huge Kentucky basketball fan. And oftentimes I will record the Kentucky basketball games. I very rarely watch a game live. I, I usually watch it recorded. And sometimes if I'm a little anxious about how the outcome of that game's gonna be, I will fast forward to the very end and see what the final score is. And if Kentucky wins, then I will rewind it and I'll watch it. There's a huge difference when I'm watching that recording from start to finish versus when I'm watching that recording from finish to start. If I'm watching the recording from start to finish, there are times that I'll get upset when the player misses a shot. I'll think to myself, how in the world can you miss that big shot? I'll think that I'll get all upset when somebody misses a free throw at a crucial point of the ball game. Or I'll get upset with a, when a call is blown. Or I'll get upset when the coach, who gets paid like $4 million, makes a, a bad decision and puts in the wrong sub at the wrong time. When I'm watching it from start to finish, there are times when I may get a little anxious. I may get a little bit upset. But when I watch it from finish to start, I'm cool, calm, and collected. I don't get upset when they miss the shot because I know the outcome. I don't get upset when he misses that free throw at a crucial point of the game because I know the final score. I don't get upset when the referee doesn't make that uh, accurate call. That's all right, we're still on top. I don't get upset when the coach who makes far too much money, when he blows a call and doesn't put in the right sub at the right time or leaves him in too long or takes him out too early. I don't get upset, why? Because I know how the game ends. You see, God rules with the end in mind. He knows your deliverance before you're even in trouble. He knows how to rescue you before there's even a problem. Before you were even in captivity, in his mind, Christ was already crucified. You know this to be true because of what is spoken in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. 
where John says, behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the world. So in God's mind, the cross of Jesus Christ was plan A and there ain't no plan B. There's no need for another plan. Before Adam and Eve fell into sin, God had already crucified Jesus. Now that ought to blow our minds. That ought to leave us spellbound. That ought to leave us overwhelmed. Just to think about the fact that God loves us so much. He is so sovereign. He is so in charge. He's so preoccupied about our deliverance that before we even got into sin, before we even got into trouble, God had already orchestrated our deliverance. This is what Joseph says. This is what Moses pins when he says God is preoccupied with your deliverance. He's so wrapped up in this that he made sure you were delivered before you even got into trouble this is your God now you also know this would be true because even while Jesus was on planet earth he was on the mountain of transfiguration and there he had two uh, visitors from the celestial city of heaven Moses and Elijah Moses representing the law Elijah representing the prophets and Moses and Elijah were standing there and you know what they were talking about with Jesus They were talking about the Exodon, the Exodus that was about to be done in the city of Jerusalem. They were talking about Calvary. They were saying to Jesus, Jesus, let us just remind you what everybody's talking about in heaven. This is the subject matter of all of our conversations, how you are going to deliver your people once and for all, not just from the shackles of slavery, but from the shackles of sin. You are going to set us free. You're going to liberate all of your people, both now and forevermore, because you are preoccupied with deliverance. What? The Bible has always said to be true is that our God who is sovereign is preoccupied with your deliverance. If you understand this, then you can handle all of life's suffering. You can handle it, whatever comes at you, because you know that God is in charge. And you also are fully aware that God rules with the end in mind and his end is for your deliverance. And before you even get in trouble, he's already set into motion your rescue. The proper perspective of life, the way you handle suffering, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, I want you to know that God is preoccupied about your deliverance. But third and finally, I also want you to understand that God always writes your narrative with a holy conjunction. God always writes your narrative with a holy conjunction. In verses seven and eight, you find the two-word phrase, but God. But God begins verse seven, and it comes and forms a bookend around verse eight, that all of this divine perspective is seen through the lens of a holy conjunction, but God. God is the one who helps to write your story. He's the one who narrates your path He is the one who guides you down the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And as he narrates your story, as he writes your story, there are times that he will insert a holy conjunction and it changes everything. It is a holy pivot. It it changes the direction and the course of your life. When God steps in and a but God shows up on the page of your history. For you realize that Abraham was told to take his one and only son Isaac to go up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. But God provided a ram caught in the thicket. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish. But God caused the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. But God 
shut up the mouths of the lions. Your weeping may endure for a night, but God's joy comes in the morning. Lazarus' sickness ended in death, but Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came hopping out of the grave. And one Friday, Jesus, the God-man, died. He bowed his head. He gave up his ghost. His dead, lifeless body was placed into a borrowed tomb. A stone was rolled in front of it. It looked as if all life was over and hope was gone. But God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. Some of you may be here this morning and you're on this side of an economic crisis. You're on this side of a health concern. You're on this side of the death of a loved one. You're on this side of a problem in your home. You're on this side of a broken marriage. You're on this side of devastation in your life. I want you to hang on and hold on because God is gonna write your narrative with a holy conjunction but God. Joseph says to his brothers, you did not send me here, but God sent me here. Because God is in charge of all things. He's sovereign. He is in control. He is preoccupied about your deliverance and he writes your narrative with a holy conjunction. I think this is the only way that you and I, like Joseph, can maintain a proper perspective in life. It's not a question of will we suffer. It's a question of when we suffer. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's not a, it's not a, a question of, of will things not go our way? Will tragedy strike our house? The answer or the question is never if. The question is always when. And when it comes, how do you handle it? Certainly, all that happened to Joseph could have undone him. It, it really just could have just destroyed his life. But he had a proper perspective. He knew that God was sovereign. He knew that God is preoccupied with his deliverance. He understood that God writes narrative with holy conjunctions. He says to his brothers, I want you to go back. I want you to get dad. Bring the family. Even the livestock. Bring everything. From now on, you're going to live in Goshen. Goshen was located in the northeastern territory of Egypt. There's five more years of famine. Without this grace, without this help, you will not be able to withstand it. So you go and come and live here. And then Joseph hugs and kisses his brother Benjamin. And not just Benjamin, but all the brothers. For the first time in 23 years, all 12 of those brothers are reunited and reconciled. Friends, this is a gospel story. This is what happens when the gospel takes root in your life. The gospel is not just fire insurance that somehow helps you to avoid the flames of hell. Yes, it does that, but it's so much more. The gospel is a force of transformation. It transforms you from the inside out. It transforms how you think and how you feel and how you live and what you do and how you interact with your brothers and sisters, even how you interact with those who harm you and how you interact with your enemies. It transforms you completely. It changes everything about you. This is the gospel. When the gospel takes root in your life, it transforms you from the inside out. And you realize that there is relationship now. Because Joseph and his brothers are hugging 
and weeping and talking. They're sharing life together. They're catching up. They've got a lot to catch up on, don't they? 23 years. And all of those tears, they're not tears of bitterness. All of those tears, it's liquid love that's flowing down their faces where they are saying to Joseph, thank you for your forgiveness. And Joseph is saying to his brothers, guys, I forgive you and I love you. We come to the apex of the story. It's the climax. It's where Joseph reveals his true identity. And he gives them forgiveness. And he gives them grace. And he does not harbor a grudge. I wonder this morning, is there anybody here who needs that kind of grace in your life? Do you need to acknowledge that God is sovereign? Do you need to realize that God is preoccupied about your deliverance right now in this very moment? Do you need to know that God writes your narrative with a holy conjunction? Do you need to come to Christ for salvation? I want you to know that this Jesus, who is so gracious to Joseph and his brothers, wants to be gracious to you today, and you can come forward and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Is there anybody here in need of that kind of grace? Anybody here who needs to give that kind of grace? Maybe you have a family member you haven't spoken to in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 23 years. Maybe you have somebody in your biological family, somebody in the faith family, somebody who you once called a friend, but they've really betrayed you. They have hurt you. They have harmed you. And you can remember with vivid clarity everything that was said and everything that was done. And when you're confronted by this story, you realize that the gospel has to change you. The gospel has to transform you. It has to melt the heart of stone so that you can give grace as grace has been given to you. I want you to know this altar is open for you this morning. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you're here today and you just need a place to call home. And you want to come and join this faith family. As God leads you, won't you respond? Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. We thank you that you are a great, awesome God and help us to respond to you in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.